Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, April 7th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember, our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you're here, Nurse Vicki's 2020 Health Tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another really good show for you today that's going to include the propaganda about saturated fat causing heart disease is shown to be untrue after all these years. Wow, it's hard to believe. And is there more harm than good for mammograms in women over 70? Can fever-reducing medications such as aspirin, NSAIDs, and Tylenol actually increase mortality from the flu? And what's the role of exercise if you have cancer? And do you need a brain scan or MRI if you've got recurring severe headaches? That one kind of surprised me a little. So, you want to prevent a heart attack? Well, we all know to prevent a heart attack, we need to avoid saturated fats, right? (laughs) Wrong. Right. Well, new international evidence now shows that we've been saturated with propaganda about the dangers of saturated fat. And current evidence does not support guidelines to restrict saturated fats in preventing heart disease. And now we know that a lack of it may be damaging. So, what about polyunsaturated fats like canola oil and corn oil and soybean oil and safflower oil, you know, the vegetable oils. Are they healthy? Sounds like it. Vegetable oils. Right. Well, they could be, but most aren't because of the processing. And then there's the trans fats, the partially hydrogenated fats. Right. Well, you know, it's almost mind-boggling to think that for 50 years or more, we've given saturated fat a bad rap. Yet at the same time, We know that we have to have saturated fats. We have to have cholesterol. Because if we don't, we can't make healthy cell membranes. We can't digest our food right because we can't can't emulsify fat. Our brain doesn't work right because it doesn't make neurotransmitters right. We can't make healthy cell membranes. Well, they've been saying that saturated fats, you know, raises your cholesterol (laughs) and... But but cholesterol is not really the problem. I mean, cholesterol has always been our friend. The problem is inflammation. And that's even what... And that's why the cholesterol forms, to protect us from the inflammation. Well, the the plaque forms. That's exactly right. But when you look at the rise in cholesterol, it's not the small, dense LDL particles that cause heart attacks and strokes. It makes a fluffy, different kind of LDL that doesn't do anything to harm you much. So when you see that rise, the good news is, is our rise in total cholesterol. You've got more cholesterol to make all the things I talked about. Plus, we can't make a lot of the sex hormones we have. We can't make vitamin D without it. Cholesterol is essential for life, and so is saturated fat. So it's gotten a bad rap. It's about that simple. Well, the thing, too, I a few years ago, I think they were trying to, well, several years ago now, trying to promote the polyunsaturated fats mm-hmm. over the saturated fats and try, trying to say that, that they were healthy. But It was for the, the very reason you just said. That's right. For, one of the problems with them, though, is that it's the way they're extracted and processed. Because exactly. they 
many times they extract the oils from these different plants Mm -hmm. with chemicals or they heat them at really high temperatures to extract those oils. And then that makes them really inflammatory. They, They cause inflammation. Oh, for sure. There's no question about it. I mean, what we need to do is stick close to Mother Nature. But what's interesting is that the American Heart Association, what do they approve? What do you mean, what do they approve? About the fats. Oh, they don't like saturated fats, and, and none of the organizations do that so are let's, involved So let's with talk about this low-fat myth. I mean, like, what about all the information that was presented by Dean Ornish and, and John McDougall and others who say that a heart-healthy diet is low in saturated fats and high in complex carbohydrates? Yeah, so now are we getting confused? It's easy to get confused in this setting because when you do epidemiological studies, which means you look for associations between things like high cholesterol and heart attacks, uh, you can you can get confused. Let's take the example of scurvy. It's not a, a deficiency in fruit that causes scurvy. We found it's a deficiency in vitamin C. So it'd be the same thing here, where you're looking at at something that is giving you an association, like between cholesterol and heart attacks and strokes. It's not the cholesterol that's the problem, but the association is. And so when you have a lot of inflammation in the body and it does things to cholesterol to make it do things to us like form plaque, that's what's happening. So when we have associations like this in epidemiological studies, we oftentimes come to the wrong conclusion. And this is what's happened here. And that's why this article that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in March of of this year uh, that was done at the University of Cambridge showed that the, that the current evidence that we have doesn't support guidelines that restrict the consumption of saturated fats in order to prevent heart disease. And they go on to say that there's insufficient support for guidelines that, 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 uh, that approve for the high consumption of polyunsaturated fats as well. And in that, they make the association to include omega-3 and 6 fats, which here they're getting off the track because, it's an, again, it's an association. So when we're looking at this, We have to look at the size of the study. It was a meta-analysis, which means they looked at studies that were already done. They looked at 72 studies, in fact, on more than 600,000 people from 18 different countries. That's a big study. Yeah, and it's it's coming from a lot of places. And what they concluded was, was that total saturated fatty acids, whether they're measured in the diet or the bloodstream as a biomarker, are not associated with coronary artery risk. So here we are. Now, does that mean that the information that Dean Ornish reported or that John McDougall reported was incorrect? No, it doesn't. It just means that it's an epidemiological study and you come to the wrong conclusion sometimes because maybe there's something else in that diet that was useful. Was it the olive oil? We know that it's the olive oil in the Mediterranean diet or seeds and nuts that have high amounts of essential fatty acids that are valuable for that. So could it be that there was something else in this diet, even though the saturated fat part was a myth and was something that people made an assumption about that turns out not to be true as we look back at the data? Well, fat is pretty filling, and it does add add flavor. Well, ask Julia Childs. Yeah. She couldn't cook without it. (laughs) And maybe butter is better. I mean, that's what we're finding. These things are true. Yeah, it's it's the processing, I think, that's what makes it so bad. And also cooking um, maybe saturated fats at high temperatures. Well, that too. And also to keep in mind, I don't know if this has anything to do with with the heart disease, but um, that the saturated fats in animal meat 
If they have pesticides in them, oh, that's, that's right. where they're stored is in fat. That's right. Well, a lot of toxins so are stored in fat. So that's where it's important to eat range-fed, or if you're going to eat meat, eat range-fed, or, or uh, what do you call it, out-to-pasture chickens. What are those? Yeah, range-fed. And so, grass-fed. Yeah, and so, so when we're looking at this thing about McDougal and, by, and of Ornish, we've got to be careful about saying that their conclusions are wrong. It's just that maybe... They're getting the right, they're getting a good result because they weren't, what what they're really talking about and what we're talking about now turns out to be something that was a bit confusing because they didn't address it because it's about sugar. It's sugar that causes these problems that lead to inflammation that also lead to uh, problems with heart attacks and strokes. Yeah, well, when so, foods claim to be low in fat, then you have to be careful of about them putting more carbohydrates and sugar and artificial sweeteners in That's them. That's true, but let's go back to what Ornish and McDougal did. They didn't give a lot of sugar in the diet. They had they complex, complex carbohydrates, which is different. So they may have come to the right conclusion uh, for the wrong reasons. And I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, you look at the article that came out in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition uh, just this year by Stephen Sinatra. That's fantastic. It talks about the saturated fat, cholesterol, and statin controversies in a commentary that has several of the people in it who are really good scientists. And their conclusions are very interesting. And basically, they're saying there are no studies at all that prove dietary cholesterol levels directly cause arteriosclerosis. And they say that many correlation studies uh, show that there is an association, but none show cause and effect. And I'll go back to a study that I did when I was a medical student for the, for the Department of Public Health for the state of California. It was during first and second year of medical school. And we did a study on that um, cholesterol and fat that people consumed and the amount of heart disease that followed. And you know what we found? The opposite of what everybody else found. We found that it was fat and cholesterol that was protective. And I thought, we must have screwed the study up. It never got published. Hmm. That's, it's interesting how you close your eyes to the facts or the truth when it, there's a mindset that already concludes that you know the answer. And that's what's happened here for 50 years. Okay, so if people choose to be vegetarians, there's other types of saturated fats that are healthy. Absolutely. Like the coconut oil. Oh, sure. Or palm oil. As long as these oils are are not destroyed, I mean, that's... That's part of the key. And if they're not partially hydrogenated, like uh, some of the oils were that make trans fats. And then to remember, just to remember some of the other healthy oils, like we just mentioned, were olive oil, but also fish oil and flaxseed oil and uh-huh. evening primrose oil and borage oil. There's other oils that are that are, that are healthy. healthy. Well, our bodies can't make essential fatty acids. That's why they're called essential. We have to take them from the outside. And I think people are going to get enough saturated fat in their diet, just in normal cooking. I, I mean, like, how much do you need of saturated fat? Well, it's fattening. I mean, it does. Well, food is fattening. Calories are fattening. It's how much you eat. But look at the fats. I mean, they, they tend to make your appetite go down. Well, here's an oxymoron for you is the fat-free dairy creamer. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) I looked up the ingredients, and there are corn syrup thickeners, chemicals, (laughs) and all that. It's it's better to eat the real cream. 
and the real butter. But this is so against people's grain because we've been brainwashed for so long that we want to eat everything non-fat or low-fat. It reminds me of the story of how we get ingrained in a certain way of thinking when it comes to breast cancer. You know, for about 75 years, the Halstead radical mastectomy, which is where you did a very invasive surgery for women who had breast cancer to take off more tissue as much as you could if, the, if you thought you could get all the cancer. And so for 75 years, we disfigured, I don't know how many millions of women, but an awful lot of people, only to find out about 15 or 20 years ago that all you had to do was a lumpectomy and you got the same benefit. So the assumption was that the radical mastectomy was a good thing because it was logical, and yet the data didn't show it. It's the same thing here. We make all these conclusions about cholesterol and about saturated fat, and then we never look to really examine that the data's there. And there are a lot of fats that are really good for us. I mean, you look at the at stearic acid as a saturated fat that's present in chocolate and beef, and it doesn't raise LDL cholesterol at all. So that's not a bad fat? No. Dark chocolate has a lot of that. And it has a beneficial effect on lipids. And it improves also the function of the endothelial membrane of the blood vessel, which is where the plaque occurs. And it lowers blood pressure. Then look at palmitic and mysteric acids. Hey, uh, wait a second, though. If you ate that chocolate without sugar, it would taste pretty bad. Not, well, a little bit of, of sweetener is, is not the worst thing in the world, or maybe use something like stevia. I mean, the, But I, what I'm talking about is just the fat okay. Okay, that's in it. And then you look at palmitic and mysteric acids that are found in palm oil, butter, and eggs, and the mysteric acid that's found in cheese, milk, butter, and beef, they all increase LDL cholesterol. And you think, well, that's terrible, very bad thing to do, but there are different kinds of LDL cholesterol. And it doesn't increase the kind that increases your risk for heart attacks and strokes, which is a small, dense particle. That's this is really the fluffy important. stuff. That's really so, important. Yeah, so there are two kinds. There's a type A and a type B. In fact, there are about nine different kinds of LDL cholesterol. And that's why a lot of the time, when you really want to know what's going on, you have to send a sample to measure cholesterol, triglycerides, and LDL and HDL to a lab like the Berkeley Heart Lab which gives you all this breakout. Well, we've certainly been led astray with shaky science that it's been demonizing natural fats, well, haven't we? you have to ask yourself a question. How can scientists be mistaken about something so simple and straightforward for 50 years? I mean, what, how, how gullible, how brainwashable are our scientists? And does it also have something to do with how you get grants? Would you get a grant 10 years ago if you were trying to prove that saturated fat was good for you? You think the NIH or whoever is giving the grants would be likely to give it? Maybe not. So we're looking at, at a topic here that's really giving us a picture of how we think in medicine. And whenever we start thinking about associations or epidemiological studies, they give us clues to what might be wrong and set the stage for doing much more advanced kinds of studies that will tell us more specifically about causes. So well, I think all this propaganda started about the 70s. Or something like that. Maybe a little before that. That's right, the late 60s. And what it's boiling down to is do we know better than Mother Nature when it comes to food? There's a huge difference between the diet that we eat from something called food and the diet we eat that's made of processed foods or supplements. 
Are supplements really the answer? And while it might make sense, because you look at things like vitamin D, if you have a low level of vitamin D, does it really do you some good to take vitamin D supplements to prevent certain things? The answer turns out to be probably so. But when you're looking at the essential fatty acids and you're deficient in those, you have to be careful about how much you replace. Because these essential fatty acids are very easily damaged by inflammation. And when they do, they set up a chain reaction in the body that destroys membrane after membrane after membrane, and you wind up with huge inflammation, and this sets the stage for developing plaques for arteriosclerosis that leads to heart attacks and strokes. Well, some of this makes me wonder if this was kind of how they got in the high fructose corn syrup into our into our diet. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the, like I said earlier, a lot of the fat-free foods are high in sugar. Yes, that's right. And you know, um, that fat is bad and the sugar and processed carbs harmless movement, um, I was reading where it it reached its height of absurdity by the late 1990s when the American Heart Association allowed Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, Fruity Marshmallow Krispies, and low-fat Pop-Tarts all to receive the American Heart Association's seal of there approval. There you go. See, they're exactly backwards. And look at cigarettes, you know, in the, in the 40s and 50s. They said there's no evidence it does anything. It doesn't cause lung cancer. You don't have to worry about your lungs. It's relaxing, you know. I'd walk a mile for a camel. Isn't that John Wayne's little thing? Yeah. Well, And, uh, and well, it turns out that it couldn't be more wrong, but it took us time because I think we had conflicts of interest that were at work there, where there was a lot of money involved in these industries, and people didn't want to just turn them over if they weren't sure that it was a problem. But we should be thinking the other way around. We shouldn't be even starting to think about using these things if there's any possibility that there is. Well, then the low-fat myth ended up leading to the epidemic of diabetes, and then what they started doing was when people were getting diabetes, then they started promoting all these artificial sweeteners for, right. the, for the diabetes. Yeah, well, see, business does funny things uh, to what people will do. When we have conflicts of interest because we're interested in making a profit, it's easy to stretch and say that these are really safe. They haven't proven to be something that's, that's bad for you. So why don't we just continue to market our stuff uh, and continue to make money? And that's where your bottom line is. It's not so much about how can I be sure that I'm not hurting anybody. I mean, look what we've done. We've got an epidemic of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and all the complications, the hypertension, the heart attacks, the strokes, the cancers, the osteoporosis, etc., etc., that's involved with some of these approaches that we take. And here we are. So we need what we need to do is eat real food, not this hyper-processed right. junk food. Like, you know, for example, take a dried apricot. Well, how many ingredients are in a dried apricot? It's the apricot. Maybe they might put a little sulfide to keep it from getting brown or yeah. something that might not be the healthiest thing. But anyway, so or wonder, how about a fresh one? But let's just say one. Com- I know, but I want to compare it to a fruit roll because a oh, fruit roll yeah, has yeah. up to thirteen ingredients, right? And it includes a lot of added sugar oh, to yeah, it, of course. And well, food colorings and so well, on. Well, it's the so same on. thing with everything. I mean, if it looks like a watermelon or a, a, a avocado or, or broccoli. You know that it's okay, but when you start refining things and putting additives and preservatives well, and processing it and taking things out, I mean, look at some of the white breads or GMOing, that are out there. Or GMOing sure, it. Sure. <laughs> you take out about 25 things, put four back in and call it enriched. It's like, give me a break. Okay, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicky, and it's time for Nurse Vicky's first 2020 tip on 
How can beer reduce your risk for cancer? That's a good stretch. And when we come back, we'll be talking about, is there more harm than good from mammograms in women over 70? We'll see. Here's an interesting study to encourage you to buy some black beer or some non-alcoholic Pilsner beer to drink. (laughs) Well, if you want, but researchers have found that if you add beer to your marinade and marinate your meat in it, for four hours before you grill it on the hot barbecue, the beer will decrease the PAHs. Those are the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons by 50%. And they form when the meats are cooked at very high temperatures. They're also found in cigarette smoke and car exhaust. And they're associated with cancers, especially colorectal cancer. So we've known that beer, wine, or tea marinades can reduce the levels of potential carcinogens in cooked meat, but little was known about how different Beer marinades affect PAH levels until now, and the study appears in the American Chemical Society's Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. Pass the beer. Interesting, yeah. And For the barbecue. Well, actually, it tastes good that way, too. I've barbecued that way before. In fact, you can cook with beer, making stews and things like that in the crock pot. And it really adds some interesting flavor. Yeah, they used to add it to uh, Welsh rarebit, which was a Mm. cheese sauce that you put on toast (laughs) when I was a kid. Yummy. Haven't seen it for years. Well, here's some good news for women over 70. Mm -hmm. Good to have good news for women over 70. No more mammograms. The (laughs) The harms from breast cancer screening outweigh the benefits for this age group. So breast screening is rarely advised because the screening doesn't result in a decrease in advanced stage cancer detection. So the women are often overdiagnosed and they're overtreated and at risk of harmful effects from the treatment. Women 69 to 75 are more likely to die from other causes than from detecting early stage cancer tumors. And there's a high incidence of complications in elderly women from surgeries and other treatments. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that some women might look at this, though, like they're just being pushed to the wayside because they're old? and, and Absolutely. And I mean, look what happened when the United States Preventive Services Task Force came out, you know, a couple of years ago saying that they didn't think that women of the age of 50 necessarily should have a mammogram. Boy, everybody went nuts and women went on crusades and they're saying, you're, you're just trying to save money. You're, you're killing us because we could detect all these early breast cancers. And, of course, they were the USPT Preventive Services Task Force was right. And it's the same thing that could happen here. Women over 70, over the hill, why bother with them? Well, that's not the case at all. In fact, this was something that was studied at Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands and published, okay, in the European Breast Cancer Conference that was this year, in March of this year. And this is, this is important stuff to look at. You know, they looked at 25,000 women from 1995 to 2011, so it's a 16-year study. They looked at stages 0, 1, and 2, which are early breast cancers, and found that those, uh, those cancers increased from 260 to 382 per 100,000 people uh, from the beginning of that study to the end when they were doing um, more mammograms like this. And they also found that the number of cases of advanced breast cancer, if anything, went down. They went from 59 cases detected in, uh, in, in 1995 to only 53 cases per 100,000 in 2011. So the data is there. The advanced cancers are the ones that are killing people. The ones that are not advanced, that are early cancers, we're winding up treating. When these women who are in their 70s or 75s 
have a real problem uh, with other kinds of health conditions. And these other health conditions uh, are, are things like heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and, and things that, you know, we eventually are going to die from. There's this thing called the life cycle, you know, where we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And by the time we're 80 or 90 or maybe to our early 100s, uh, there's, there's the end of life. And, and it's not going to be from these mild cancers. So they're basically looking at something that's uh, a, a huge issue that is really looking at the business of mammography and supporting it rather than supporting the women. So in women that are around 70 or over, it doesn't lower the incidence or the deaths by having the mammograms. The, the, the incidence of the advanced cancers or deaths. So if it doesn't do any good, why do it? You know, it reminds me of the study that was just done that we reported on recently, uh, a 25-year Canadian study that showed that there wasn't any difference in mortality in women between the ages of 50 and 75 who had mammograms and those that didn't have mammograms. And, and the bad news wasn't just that. It's that the 22% of the women in the group that got the mammograms were getting overtreated more than the group that well, wasn't getting yeah, the well, mammogram. Yeah, well, they showed that in this group, too. Yeah, yeah, so it's consistent, and it's it's time we look at and mammography. And then when they're overtreated, it ends up decreasing their quality of life and their function. Oh, and lots of problems. It causes costs a lot of money, and then there's no even no health benefits anyway. Yeah, well, that's right. So who are we supporting here? Oh, it's, maybe the radiology industry, the mammogram industry, insurance, big pharma. Yeah. Uh, doctors, right? It's so it's it's a it's a test that's looking for some kind of application, in my viewpoint. So we're basically talking about the mammogram as creating problems. You know, there were studies about 20 years ago that the Swedes did that showed that the the risk of dying was higher in women who had mammograms than those that didn't, and everybody laughed at it and said it couldn't be right. So they just categorically threw it out. And then all these other studies that have been done in the meantime, many of them have been designed by people who have a conflict of interest. And so what do you wind up with? People telling you that you need to have this test. So it's people, really... Well, it's easy to keep making assumptions. It's like, oh, well, it just makes sense that if you would screen, that it would save lives yeah, because well, it would detect them earlier. Well, uh, yeah. Well, earlier detection may be a good thing, okay, but... It's also a bad thing from the point of view that a lot of cancers that women develop that are invasive cancers, they go away on their own. There were studies on 100,000 women. But if you had it, you'd be scared, scared and wouldn't trust that it might just, not, might just go away. No. Well, look at all the women who say, well, the mammogram saved my life. And my, my comment is, did it really? Maybe it the mammogram anyway, yeah. found your cancer. Maybe it was a ductal carcinoma in situ that would have not killed you anyway 98% of the time. Or maybe it was one of those 22% of cancers that go away by themselves. You don't know. But you'd like to think that you didn't go through all that for nothing. And when, you, when you're looking at, at what happens just with women who get mammograms, there was a study of 100,000 women who got mammograms and, and at, a year, at the beginning of the study, at year three and at year five, which was the end of the study. And in that group, they found 2,000 cases of breast cancer at the end of five years. The second group of 100,000 women, they only did a mammogram at the end of five years, and they only found 1,500 cancers. 
So what happened to the other 500? Were those the ones that we claim we cure because they're ductal carcinoma in situ or they're in that 22% of women whose cancer spontaneously clear? Don't know the answer to that, do you? So we have a lot to think about here. And screening, I guess, needs to be personalized. Well, yeah, some people might. I mean, a mammogram could be a good test for some people, but we're talking about screening for cancer. I think this test is on the way out. Period as a screening. Well, breast thermography is the way to go. Well, the for trouble sure. is that not enough people do it besides us. Well, well, there's. I mean, it's it's a growing industry, and there are people who definitely uh, are buying into it that are good people. But it's not like it's something that's a, a shoe in right now because there's a there's a big turf for it. It's about dollars. And it's about income. When that happens, it's a real problem. So we need to be looking at new options for things and have an open mind for what's possible. We don't want to just stick with something because it's been around for a long time. And there's a huge industry that has a conflict of interest uh, between the money that it makes and the service it's supposed to provide. And we hear the pink ribbons. You, you oh, go to the yeah. checkout counter. They want to know if you, you want to contribute to it. Yeah, that's and all about business. You're right. And it, even on talk shows, I mean, everybody's promoting mammograms. Well, we're we're the, bombarded. They, they make the assumption, and of course, the people who are really making the money, which would be the people in the pharmaceutical industry, because they're providing the chemotherapy and the drugs that are important that uh, are used to treat the cancers, uh, and a lot more cancers are being found and a lot more being treated. So it's important to look into breast thermography. Absolutely. There's a lot on our, on our website at drsabuda.com. Just put breast thermography in there or mammography in there and a lot of information will come out. All right, it's time for a Progressive Radio Network station break. So you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Sabuda here with Nurse Vicki. And we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio. And we'll be talking about can fever-reducing medications like aspirin, NSAIDs, and Tylenol increase mortality from the flu? <laughs> Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. So what do you do for a fever? Anything? Mm. Everybody wants to do everything. Or do something, huh? Yeah, like a fever is the worst thing that can happen to you and it doesn't do you any good, right? Well. So do you take an ibuprofen or another NSAID or Tylenol or an aspirin to feel better and then go to school or to work because you feel better and your fever has subsided? <laughs> exactly. So is this a good idea? Duh. Well, common sense sense says that you should stay in bed if you're sick enough to have an elevated temperature. And the latest research shows if you take fever-reducing meds, you may feel better, but they make you more contagious. And if it's the flu, this could really be serious. Absolutely. I mean, if it... Meaning the fever uh, is something that's good for us because it helps lower the viral, the viral load and decrease the spread... Uh, then the fever is a good thing. And, of yeah. course, fever is good anyway because it increases the, the rate of uh, metabolic reactions in the body. The higher the temperature for a lot of important reactions, the faster they occur, the faster that we, we can recover. So it's nature's defense mechanism. Absolutely. And it can be healing. But, you know, it is tempting because 
We've just been bombarded with propaganda about how bad that is. And just picture some of the propaganda on TV with the with the sick child and the mother goes in and oh, takes their temperature and they look so sad. And them, you know, and so people start feeling the pressure of that. And also babies, if babies get a high fever, that can it's really be, story. be serious. So how high does a temperature have to be before you should do something about it? I mean, I can remember years ago uh, having patients in in the hospital who were packed in ice. Yeah, right. Well, it depends on your age and it depends on how high the temperature is. If you're under the age of five or six, probably a temperature of 104, you want to start doing something because of the febrile seizures that occur so often to these kids just because of the temperature. So anything under 104? I'd, I'd probably sit tight and I'd start looking at using a tepid uh, bath water or a little bit of cold water to, to try and bring and the temperature down. That's what I always did with but my I wouldn't be children. Trying to, I wouldn't be using drugs unless there's no other way to go. Well, it's a tepid a, bath, but it's not just sitting in the bath. You need to take a washcloth and lightly use friction. Yeah. And that, I guess, takes the, the, the heat to the skin. Is that well, why it, makes, it works? It makes the cold water more... Uh, effective on the skin if the skin has got better circulation. And that's what rubbing the skin does. And, you know, these medications, the aspirin, the Tylenol, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Aleve and Advil and Motrin and so forth, they don't shorten colds or or whatever ails you. They only help with the symptoms, and they can have very dangerous side effects. Oh, for sure. Oh, we know somebody that just got out of the hospital from having side effects from taking an Aleve. Oh, yeah. And she ended up with bleeding ulcers from that. Absolutely. And... You know, too, they've also found that you can get heart attacks and strokes besides bleeding from the insects. Kidney failure. And you and and Tylenol can give you the kidney failure, but it also can cause more, GI bleeding. And most people don't yeah. even know that. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and hearing loss with all three of them. That's right. And and so when you look at adults who have a fever, that's another story. How high does that temperature have to be before you're wanting to do something aggressive? There, you start looking over 105. Uh, you, it's probably time to do something. And there are a lot of reasons why people get fevers like that. And it's not just from infection. Sometimes brain trauma will do that because the regulatory center of temperature uh, control center of the brain is off. And if you get much over 106, it starts causing major problems to your uh, to your body that you may not recover from. Okay, so, so an adult, 105? Yeah, I think I would. But, you know, you should probably see a doctor at that point. Or, or well before it, depending on, on how you're doing, because that's kind of an excessive temperature to have. I know sometimes when you get sick, like if you've gotten get a cold or mm-hmm. something, and you, you you don't have time to be sick, you go take <laughs> a hot. You, well, you make your own fever. You go get in a hot bathtub and wrap yourself up in towels and, yep. and sweat it out. Yep. And it's well. amazing because a lot of times the next day you're better, and it's like, how did you how how did that happen yeah. so fast? Well, see, Mother Nature knows what she's doing, and I like following her advice, and if I can mimic it, I will. So the idea of getting your, your core temperature up to 104 or 5 and sweating like crazy will do a lot to help detoxify. But you have to be careful if you're going to do that on oh, your yeah. own. You shouldn't be alone when you no, do something like sure. that because you could pass out. You pass out in the tub, you may get rid of the cold, but you may <laughs> you're have another problem that you have to deal with that's worse. <laughs> a broken hip or something. Well, that's right. 
But anyway, plus if you're sick and then you're feeling better and you go out into pub into the public mm-hmm. and then you end up spreading it to exactly. all these other people. And maybe some of the people that you spread it to don't have an immune system as good as yours or as strong as yours. What if they have just had chemotherapy or what if they're an, an elder you know, an elder. Well, that's where this title comes into or play. Or a baby. Say, can fever-reducing medications increase mortality? Well, not directly in the person who has the problem. It's indirectly by lowering the viral load and increasing the person's infectiveness to other people. So this study that was done that looked at this was done out of McMaster University. And basically, it was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B., And they predicted that fever suppression would increase the number of annual cases by about 5%. And if you figure there are 60 or 70,000 deaths every year from influenza, which isn't the case, but that's what they figured, you may have 1,000 or more people who are going to be dying from influenza and maybe tens of thousands or more people getting sick just from this because the virus is spreading more actively and aggressively. (laughs) <laughs> you go into the waiting room at the doctor's office. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the place where people, of course, they're already sick, and it's hard to get two viral infections at one time. Did you know that? You can only really get one because the body makes a compound called interferon, and when interferon is present, it blocks the, the other viruses that are of a different type from getting into the cell and infecting it. Well, another thing to, one illness at a time. Another thing to possibly bring up at this point is that antibiotics do nothing for viruses. Well, and they make so it worse. So many pe- people insist with their doctor that they put them on an antibiotic when they have a virus. Yeah, well, it's the same kind of thinking that says, well, you can take an aspirin or Tylenol or an NSAID of some kind like Advil. What's the, pro- what's the problem? And it's the same thing that they say with antibiotics. What's the problem? Well, there is a problem. I remember back in medical school uh, in the 60s, okay, when I was there, acromycin was there, and, and we were all talking about uh, uh, taking that if you got a cold because we all thought, well, what harm does it do? Because we didn't know any harms that much at that time like we do today. And now we've got all these resistant microbes and we're destroying the microflora of the gut. We're exposing ourselves to a hundred other side effects from these drugs. And you look at things like aspirin and NSAIDs and, and Tylenol, they have a real problem with all these things we're talking about as well. So When it's you not think like about just the NSAIDs alone, 300,000 people are admitted to hospitals a year and 30,000 die. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to push that number. And that's just in the U.S. That's not worldwide. That number gets much bigger. Well, it's hard to change habits and beliefs, so starts with educating yourself about it, and that's what we're trying to do is educate everybody. Well, that's exactly right. So, uh, I mean, it's one thing to try to try and do things that are going to make you feel better, and it's another thing to uh, to respect what's happening with your infection and take care of yourself. In fact, that's the problem to start with, is that we don't take care of ourselves well enough. We don't get enough sleep uh, or we're stressed out. Uh, We're not eating a healthy diet. We're not getting enough exercise. Our body's not in a mode that's strong. What do you think is going to happen? 
your so when you're lying in the hospital down. throwing up blood, you might think maybe it was worth it to have a few little aches and pains when I was sick with the whatever right, I had. You had to take the pain medicine for. So it's it's not a small thing, uh, and and we should be respecting Mother Nature when it comes to fever, and for the side effects that we have uh, from so many of the illnesses that we're getting that you know, that come on through the year. All right. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Zubuda here with Nurse Vicki. It's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on top foods and herbs for healing cancer. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what's the role of exercise if you have cancer and do you need a brain scan or MRI if you have recurring severe headaches. Did you see the article by Derek Henry on the top foods and herbs for healing cancer? Well, no one wants the big C, and you may ask, what can I do to prevent cancer? Besides a healthy lifestyle and avoiding toxins in the environment, there are foods and herbs to prevent and heal cancer. So first, start out by eating organic and GMO-free foods to avoid the cancer-causing herbicides and pesticides. And then some of the nutrient-rich foods that will nourish your body and detoxify the cancer-causing agents that are the most potent cancer-destroying foods and herbs are... To begin with, sea vegetables like kelp and kombu and nori, they're all high in iodine. And then there's algae. The best ones are chlorella and spirulina because they're potent algae proven to fight cancer and they detoxify and boost immunity and they even promote healthy gut flora. Then there are cruciferous vegetables, kale, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. They all halt the growth of cancer cells and they stimulate stimulate enzymes that detoxify carcinogens before they have a chance to damage the cells. Then there are medicinal mushrooms like reishi and chaga, and they contain anti-tumor agents if they're eaten regularly. Aloe vera boosts the immune system and it destroys cancer, uh, cancer tumors. Hemp contains the highest amount of essential fatty acids of any plant. It's 80% with an ideal ratio of the omega-6 and 3s, and it's an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory boosting immunity and some researchers think that it has the potential for anti-cancer effects and then there's garlic that contains the enzyme allicin or alanase which produces anti-cancer compounds and the key is to crush it and then you let it sit for 15 minutes to release the compounds before you eat it and last but not least in this particular group is turmeric and it has anti-cancer properties as well yeah that may be the most powerful one that we use on a regular basis so nourish and detoxify your body of cancer-causing agents and eat healthy, be healthy. Absolutely. Lifestyle, we forget how powerful that is. A lot more powerful than the drugs that are, used, that are used for chemotherapy. When you look at what we're going to get into in a minute about physical activity and what it does, you're going to, it'll, it's an eye-opener. So if you have cancer, don't be afraid to exercise. Right. Because this Harvard study shows that physical activity significantly extends the lives of cancer survivors and it decreases the risk of cancer progression as well. We already know that exercise reduces the risk of getting cancer in the first place, along with other lifestyle factors, partly due to the detoxification and increasing insulin sensitivity. So you can't lose with exercise because it reduces all-cause 
mortality. Yeah, and as we age, it becomes even more important because as we age, it's it's almost like we get into the log phase of the curve, which means that the rate at which we slow down accelerates at a much faster rate than when we're younger. Of course, when would a person start doing the exercise that had cancer? Because, you know, there are times when a person has cancer, especially if they're going through through treatment, that they're extremely fatigued and tired, and it probably is best at that time to rest their body to let it heal. Right, so maybe that's the time to watch a tennis match or a football game or something like that, just to get your mind thinking about exercise, because what you think even does something to help get your body in a state where it begins to condition itself better, and even helps the mitochondria to make more ATP, which is the energy currency of the body. Well, there are some theories that I've heard, like, for example, with the Gerson protocol in, mm-hmm. uh, where is that, Tijuana? It's, well, it's it's the major place where it is, yes. But yeah, but they now. encourage rest for people that have cancer. Of course, this study well, is was, more talking about when the patients have already survived the cancer. Well, yes, but I mean, we're looking at Max Gerson from 100 years ago. I mean, he had a great <laughs> thing then, but there have been some advances since that time, so we need to learn from the research that we have, and I think that exercise is is showing that, that it really does make a big difference. So we're looking at some stuff that, that's important here. There was a an article that was published in the Journal of Physical Activity and Health uh, in, in just this year uh, that showed that there was an increase in survival in people who had cancer if they exercised. And they looked at a 1,000 men with cancer, and they went ahead and, and found that those that burned about 12,000 calories a week had about 48% less all-cause mortality than those people that did about 2,100 calories a week. Now, a 175-pound man walking briskly for 30 minutes five days a week burns 4,200 calories, which is somewhere in between those two. So you can see that a lot of exercise is important here. It makes a lot of difference. It does make a difference. And so... We're looking at lifestyle factors here and comparing them with things like chemotherapy or radiation or hormonal therapies. And, and if you have just a 10 or 15% increase in survival using a drug uh, that's very toxic, that has side effects that you don't want to know anything about, uh, that can do things to your brain and to your energy level and, to, I mean, just make your hair fall out. Well, I've heard stories about people getting up to, after they've had chemo, getting up to go to the bathroom and they were just so tired that they ended up lying down on the bathroom floor yeah, well, because they couldn't even make it back to bed. So that's okay. not when it's time to exercise So yet. what's the point <laughs> I'm trying to make here is that exercise, if it, it, re, if it reduces mortality by 48%, and you add to it vitamin D levels that are higher, and you look at a good diet, and you look at restful sleep, and you look at re- removing toxic exposures, you're talking about a lot more power than any chemotherapy or radiation or surgery is going to do most of the time. So why don't our oncologists then start looking at ways to do this rather than do the things that are dangerous, have lots of side effects, and cost a lot of money? You have to ask yourself that question. And, and, when the, you and do, the results of the chemotherapy aren't always so great either. Well, you look at stage 4 cancers, okay, stage 4 cancers of solid tumors, the 5-year survival rate is about 2%. And we're still using chemotherapy in those settings for lots of reasons where we could be using these other approaches in its place hoping for much better results than that, but we don't focus a lot of attention on it. So when an article like this comes out, it really catches my attention. 
And I, I think we need to focus more on the things that are simple that work rather than look at the dangerous things that are expensive, that there's a conflict of interest involved because there's a lot of money involved. And then also when you were mentioning the vitamin D, that, that speaks to me about the importance of exercising outside. Absolutely. Sunlight you mean, you, is absolutely vital. And keep in mind that those UVB rays that hit your skin that make vitamin D uh, happen are only there between 10 and 2. And then generally, it's only in, in the summer or maybe the, the late spring or early fall that we're getting enough UVB to make significant vitamin D levels. So then we're also, you also mentioned about the importance of getting enough sleep. And if you exercise, oh, yeah. you will sleep better. You'll sleep better for sure because you'll be more tired. And the effect of sleep on immunity is huge. If you don't get enough, uh, enough uh, sleep, just one night you miss four or five hours of sleep, your natural killer cells, which fight cancer, go down 30 or 40%. So you're looking at huge factors here rather than looking at the relatively minor effect of the chemotherapies and radiation and surgeries that we're looking at. And exercise also increases our endorphins. Those are our feel-good hormones. Yeah. And that helps you to be more positive, to have a more positive attitude, which Absolutely. is also very healing. Sure, may boost immunity that way. So we've got a lot of factors here that we want to pay attention to. And I'm not trying to put down uh, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. There's a place for that. You wouldn't want to give that away in some settings. But you also wouldn't want to focus on those things necessarily until you've looked at lifestyle factors first. Well, the other one I wanted to throw in here before we start talking about uh, headaches uh -huh. is AP ATP production because... Uh -huh. We produce more ATP, that's the energy in the cell, from exercising, and that helps with our healing. Well, it, it actually conditions our mitochondria, which are the energy packets in the cell, to uh, make more ATP if we condition them by exercising. Our body is very adaptive, and that's what we're looking to cash in on. So, if we don't get migraines ourselves, we've heard how bad the headaches can be when sufferers often go to the ER for pain shots right. and they can't stand the light. Often their vision's affected and they throw up because the pain is so bad. Exactly. But wouldn't it be tempting if you had a headache this bad to want to have a CT or an MRI brain scan to rule out a brain tumor or a stroke or an aneurysm or, or something Sure. Something worse. Well, according to a University of Michigan study, this is so rare and the cost is so high that if your doctor doesn't recommend a scan, you shouldn't push it. Yeah, I think that's right. But can't you see how somebody, let's say it's somebody's first migraine. Uh -huh. They might be scared out of their wits and they well, might think they have something else like a brain tumor or a aneurysm. And or they something. actually might, but it's not very common. And what they found is, is that the headache itself doesn't really put you at a higher risk for having things like a brain tumor, an aneurysm, or an AV malformation, or some other kind of serious thing. No, the incidence is, is the same in people who have headaches as in people who don't have headaches. So you need to have an experienced doctor or neurologist who can assess things. And the problem is, is in this litigious society that we live in, we're very inclined to... to practice defensive medicine, which means if you miss somebody who has one of these things and you haven't done an MRI or a CT scan, you're probably going to get sued. And you may have the medical boards coming after you as well. So you're getting it from both ends. What we need are doctors with experience 
that are not afraid to use their judgment and to follow people closely to see what happens. So you can usually know in a matter of a few weeks uh, whether or not this is something that, that's more than just, say, a But what if you had an aneurysm? That's going to happen fast well, or if it breaks. The point is, is you would think that if it's ruptured, of course, but you're going to have a different kind of headache that's totally unrelenting. So I think a good doctor who has experience in the field of neurology can make that differential. And that's what we're looking for. So, so what are, what are other reasons uh, not not to scan? Well, I mean, look at a CT scan; you're getting a lot of radiation, and you look at an MRI, and, and it costs a lot of money. Uh, you get so, false positives with that too, don't you? Sometimes. Well, it finds too many things that lead wild, lead you on wild goose chases a lot of the time. So you probably don't want to be doing that too much. I think a better way to to look at this, and I think our headache clinics are way behind the literature that's out there that uh, shows how to deal with headaches. I mean, we're mostly looking at people who are in headache clinics are there because they're having rebound headaches from the medications they're taking. And then we use more and more of different kinds of medicines. more medicines. Yeah, to try and control the pain. And what we should be doing is looking at the underlying cause for why these people have Headaches, whether they're migraine or not, and I have to say migraine headaches are very much overdiagnosed. Uh, Sometimes it's from the neck, isn't it? I'd say most of the time, 90% of headaches are triggered by problems in the neck. And if you use chiropractic, acupuncture, uh, body work. Photon stimulator. Absolutely. The infrared light therapy is absolutely stunning at how it relieves headaches. Except for the few very bad headaches that a few people have, uh, an infrared treatment that's done properly will relieve 95% of the headaches in under five minutes. And if you do that for several days, they don't come back much. And a lot of those are caused by the jaw, the TMJ, or they're caused by cervical discs or by injuries to the neck uh, that are old from auto accidents and things like that that serve as a trigger so that if somebody does get a migraine headache, uh, this would be... Uh, something that you could block, not by treating the migraine part of it, but, but by treating the trigger part of it. So you, most of the time, in my experience, don't have to use drugs to manage these people's pain. I also thought it was interesting that the cost of the imaging is higher than the cost of all the visits to neurologists combined. Yeah, it's an uh, it's impressive number. Well, in because the, era, the guidelines, they were trying to discourage scans, but, but it said what happened that they'd risen due to the patient demand and the insurance pays well, the, the, the $1 billion a year for these scans. Let's to be fair. Paper let's here. be fair. When we, can't, when we doctors don't have the answers in an easy way, we put it back on the patient and blame them. Now, there are not too many patients who have headaches that are going to say, I'm coming to you because I want a CT scan or an MRI. They're coming because they headache, you have a headache and they want it fixed. And if you do the things that you can do, like I just mentioned, you can deal with most of those headaches, and they, these people don't wind up in headache clinics. And it may sound a little bit uh, arrogant for me to be talking like this, but I've had 15 years of experience with infrared light therapy, and I can tell you there are very few headaches that we can't solve that way. Well, we're at the end of the show, and we want to remind you that we're back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsabuda.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Prescriptions for Health will also be available 24-7 on PRN.FM. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, you can click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. 